Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. You've probably heard the news. The giant online retailer Amazon is searching for a second corporate headquarters to expand outside of Seattle. Got breaking news and it's about Amazon. And their much touted headquarters too. Where are they going to locate? Of the nearly 240 bids from across America, the 20 finalists are mostly in the east and south, from big cities like Boston, Dallas and Atlanta, to the midsize like Columbus, Raleigh and Nashville. It's a big fight. Amazon is running a reality show. They've got the mayors of every city coming to them. They've asked for all kinds of data. This is kind of an amazing process to watch. Amazon has conducted the search basically as a kind of competition, and cities are trying everything to win the company over. Tucson sent a 21-foot saguaro cactus to Amazon. Pittsburgh offered a free sandwich to each and every Amazon worker, and Stonecrest, Georgia even offered to rename itself as Amazon Georgia. Other cities weren't willing to hit the delete button on their name, but they did use another tool at their disposal, tax incentives. In the first round of the competition, more than 238 cities applied, and most of those proposals centered around huge tax incentive packages to entice the company to move to their location. Philadelphia is offering a billion dollars in tax breaks. It is a game changer for us. 50,000 jobs, uh, well-paying jobs, are, uh, can change an entire city and change an entire culture. These types of tax incentives are expected to attract businesses like Amazon and ultimately stimulate local economic development. But are they truly effective? And what might be the trade-offs and hidden costs of these deals? I spoke with Megan Randall, who researches state and local finance at the Urban Institute to get a full picture of the economic and social effects of winning an Amazon bid. I wanted to start out by talking about some of the potential of these big economic development projects. In Amazon search, as you know, for their new headquarters, they've said that this new hub could bring up to 50,000 high paying jobs, 8 million square feet of office space, billions in capital investments and indirect investments. What does this mean for cities? How do they see those types of opportunities? And the first thing to note about Amazon, of course, is just the magnitude of the scale of this potential investment. And the, the scale is frankly unprecedented. And we're talking about a huge number of jobs and a huge amount of property investment that can have a huge effect on the community. And those effects can come in the forms of jobs, opportunities for your residents to participate in that economy, um, as well as an increased fiscal base especially with the huge amount of property tax investment that's going to, or property investment that's going to come in. And then potential sort of multiplier effects that can come from sort of building up an agglomeration economy. So when Amazon comes in, there might be other firms that then decide to open that service Amazon, sort of, you know, more supplier, a supplier chain effect, so to speak, where you have other businesses that actually grow up and move around, you know, because Amazon is located in your community. What are cities offering up to firms like Amazon, but other factories, other types of firms when trying to make their location more attractive? There's a couple different types of things you might see in an incentive package. One of those are clearly tax incentives, i.e. a tax break that a city or state is giving to a company. Those can be property tax breaks, income tax breaks sometimes if it's at the state level or if the city has an income tax. 
sales tax abatements. You can see direct cash grants that are just you know, directly the state or locality giving money. Um, sometimes those might be for specific things like workforce training credits or cash to educate workers. Then you can see some more sort of indirect, I don't want to call them indirect incentives, but they're things that benefit the firm that are intended to be attractive to them, such as site prep. If you have a really big headquarters or manufacturing site moving in, infrastructure and transit improvements, road improvements, bridge improvements, and there can be other sort of workforce training um, incentives that are also put into these packages. So there's a lot of tools in that toolkit, it sounds like, from infrastructure Mm -hmm. to different tax policies to different types of other services and supports. Why do policymakers feel compelled to dangle these big tax incentives in front of companies? You know, you can imagine that as an elected official or a professional economic development policymaker, you know, trying to you're trying to make a good faith effort to bring jobs to your community to give opportunity to your residents. Amazon comes knocking on your door and says, we're interested in you, but we have a few other places and you don't know what cards they're holding. You don't want to be that elected official that loses out to an Amazon. So understandably, that's a lot of pressure that elected officials and economic development policymakers feel when they're engaging in these discussions. And it is a prisoner's dilemma. And some research has shown that, you know, this lack of information, you know, you don't know what cards not only is Amazon holding, but you don't know what the cards that the other cities are holding. And so, you know, you're willing to put a lot on the line for a chance to land this firm, not knowing a lot about what you're really competing against. And so this can cause this competitive incentive that really encourages cities to, in some cases, give up a lot of their, or you know, more of their tax base than they really need to in order to compete with you know, their peers. And, you know, there's also something to be said for the ribbon cutting effect, um, which is, you know, that some of these tax incentive packages are, they're short term, they're easy to think about in the short term, and they're pretty and they're shiny. And everyone wants to sort of cut the ribbon on a big project, right? And that's a material benefit that you can demonstrate to your your voters that you brought to them. And, you know, this is not to say that voters or elected officials don't care about other things that might be less sexy, like education or, you know, infrastructure planning. But those things tend to have benefits in the long term that are harder to sort of you know, demonstrate material benefit to your constituents in that moment. So what does the research actually show if cities are offering up some of these benefits, some of these incentives? What does the research show about how those actually affect the decisions that firms make? Do they play a big role in the calculus? So the first thing to know is that research actually suggests that economic activity is fairly unresponsive to changes in taxes. And the biggest influence on where a company decides to go are actually related to regional factors that are well beyond a state or locality's control in the short run. There's a lot of site selection surveys out there that ask, you know, site selection consultants and CEOs and things like that, why do you go where you go? And they say, typically, there are things like access to certain infrastructure, such as highways or airports, um, and also the availability of skilled labor that tend to come to the top repeatedly in terms of deciding factors, in terms of where firms decide to go where they go. And, you know, tax incentives make the list, but they tend to be much further down um, than some of these larger, more macro scale regional economic development factors. General Electric moved from Connecticut to Boston recently, and they broke ground last year. 
And it was just interesting. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal where they, they quoted the CFO as saying after they'd broken ground that tax incentive package that GE received, and it was a large one from the state and the city, did not was not actually the deciding factor. And they're deciding to go to Boston. They went to Boston because it's a tech hub, because it has one of the most educated workforces in the country, because it has great infrastructure, access to waterways, all these things that make it so appealing um, for a big firm like GE. So it seems like one of the hidden sides of this might be what we call opportunity cost, right? And instead of increasing the tax base or having the taxes over the over the, the period of time that would be offered up to the firms, they will be either decreased, the firms won't be paying those taxes, or the city will not actually get some of that income. H- how do you think about and talk about the opportunity costs of some of the tax incentives that are offered by cities to firms? Sure. I think that's one of the most important things to remember is that, you know, tax incentives often don't appear on the budget because they're, they come in the form of foregone revenue. But those dollars are lost dollars and those are lost public dollars. And as being good stewards of public resources, we really need to ask ourselves, you know, where do we want our public funds going? And sort of putting aside the question of, does this firm even need the tax incentive to go here in the first place, which is already very tenuous, there's this question of, you know, is this the best and highest use of public dollars, especially if our objective is economic development? And so some of the opportunity costs, I mean, state and local governments are, you know, they provide really important services like public education, whether that be K through 12 or higher education. Public safety spending is another one, especially at the local level. Uh, infrastructure spending. When I think about the use of public dollars to be directed towards firms in this way, one analogy comes to mind, and that's of stadiums where oftentimes public resources are used to help pay for a big stadium. So you're using tax dollars ostensibly to the benefit of that community, that there'll be ancillary benefits that will redound to the city, the region. Sometimes it's sold as the state. And my understanding of the research is that often doesn't take place, that really you have these massive infrastructure projects, but that the benefits of them are pretty micro level, may help um, certain communities. Is that the right way to think about some of these deals? Or is it actually that these firms can have this effect, the multiplier effect that you talked about, of really bringing in other firms, other resources, and increasing economic activity in cities? So in the case of stadiums, I think this is a perfect example of cities paying a lot per job for jobs that might be transitory or jobs that are not very good jobs. It's a cost-benefit analysis problem, right? So a lot of the times when we're putting together these economic development deals or thinking about benefits to a community, we only think about the benefits, right? Mm -hmm. We only think about the spending that's going to happen in the stadium or, you know, those number of jobs that are going to go to people, but we don't think about the costs. And there are a lot of costs to having a stadium in the middle of your city, whether that's infrastructure, site prep, or what the city spends, you know, and shuttling people to and from the stadium or, you know, things of that nature. And the jobs might not be as good as the jobs that, you know, you want for your community. Some research shows that, you know, new jobs that are produced in a community, eight out of 10 of those are more likely to go to people who are actually moving in from outside the city or state. And so, you know, if if you're worried about unemployed residents in your city, it might be that jobs that are coming in won't necessarily help them or won't necessarily go to them. Especially if eight and 10 new jobs are going to go to in-migrants, you have to be asking the question of what are those folks going to cost the city in terms of, you know, they're bringing kids to educate in public schools and that's going to cost the city some money. They're going to bring cars and drive on the roads. That's going to, you know, cost 
cause some infrastructure costs to go up. You know, public safety costs are going to go up. All these things are going to go up and they're going to go onto the city's ledger in a way that's a little bit less direct and a little bit less visible. But the costs don't necessarily outweigh the benefits, right? But especially if we're negotiating and the city is putting some money on the table, it's important to remember that the city is actually forking up more resources than it, than it might realize in the long run. So there might be those resources that are obvious with some of the tax incentives that might be part of the deal. And then there are some of these other hidden costs that are in the background in terms of strain on public resources, public services, infrastructure and the like. Yes, absolutely. Let's actually just go ahead and talk about affordability and what that means for what what the impact of bringing in 50,000 high wage earners could mean for a city housing value, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Sure. So as high wage earners move into the city, And as we discussed before, they're more likely to be moving probably in from somewhere else than, you know, being current residents. Um, So as high wage earners move into the city and as property investment ticks up, you know, property values will go up. And this will benefit some people, will benefit some homeowners who are, you know, getting more equity in their homes, things like that. But not everybody will be able to afford, you know, the increased rents and things that come with that uptick in investment. For any of these questions, it's important not to only think about the what, but the who, right? And so who is going to get these high-wage jobs, not only in terms of people moving in versus current residents, but even among current residents, who is more likely to qualify for those jobs? And of those who aren't likely to benefit from those jobs, are they then going to be able to continue to live in their communities if uh, rents continue to rise and things like that? And so when we're talking about who benefits from and who might not benefit from some some elements of these deals, it's important to note that the type of competition that we're talking about can actually further entrench inequality, especially if some cities are systematically unable to compete or don't have the fiscal power to actually put in a good deal. So, you know, we can talk about inequality both at the city level in terms of what populations are benefiting from or losing in these deals. We can also talk about it regionally or even at the state level where, you know, some cities that might actually be the most likely to benefit from this kind of investment might not actually have the capacity to compete. Let's put you in the chair Uh, right next to a mayor in a major American city. Let's say Denver. That's where I'm from. You're a policy advisor to the mayor of Denver. What would be some of the key factors beyond just the number of jobs and some of those other metrics that are sold or talked about by some of these firms? What else should they policymakers consider as they try to lure firms to their cities? What I would say is there are three things to think about if you're going to be doing a tax incentive deal. One, the first is transparency. And this can be a tricky one because oftentimes these negotiations are very opaque. They're intentionally opaque because of this, again, this prisoner's dilemma. These are sort of, you know, follow the model of more private sector cloaked negotiations where everyone's holding their cards really close to their chest. And so the public, for example, doesn't even often know what's in an incentive deal until after it's already decided upon, just as you know, shareholders have a right to information about a company's finances, et cetera. It's really important that voters and taxpayers know where resource decisions their elected officials are making. The second thing that you need to think about is quality. And like we were saying, incorporating standards into the deal that talk about not only how many jobs, but what wage level you expect those jobs to be at. 
um, whether or not people need to hire from a certain number of people from within the region or within the city. And so thinking about those quality standards and additionally in the deal, if you can incorporate things that not only benefit the firm, but actually might have positive spillover effects in the long term for the community, such as infrastructure improvements, right? If you fix a bridge that benefits the firm, that's great. Um, But also a bunch of other community residents might benefit from that for a long time. Thirdly, I would think about accountability. And this is really important for a long time. Cities and states did not put things into their deals like clawback measures, Mm. for example. So if a firm comes in, they say they're going to bring, you know, 100 jobs and they only bring 25. This is a problem. The city paid for 100 jobs, you know, and if they can't get their money back, that's sort of a bad deal for the city or state, right? So making sure that there's things in the in the deal or in law that allow the city or the state to say, hey, you didn't live up to your end of the agreement. And actually those resources that you, you know, were entitled to under our deal, you're no longer entitled to those. So you've talked about the state of competition that cities and localities can be in in order to attract firms. Mm-hmm. How would cities and states get start to think about getting beyond that? That sure. does seem like that can lead to the race to the bottom or the prisoner's dilemma Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. What are some of the things that they can do to supersede some of that competition? Our most recent research has shown that as a share of jobs and economic activity, actually firm movements are very, very small. They're de minimis. They're, you know, 1% or less. Mm. And so where, where real job growth or where real job decline is coming from is actually firms that are being born or dying um, or firms, uh, establishments that are expanding or contracting. And so, you know, I think sharing this type of information with policymakers gives them a foundation to say, I'm not going to engage in these really competitive bidding wars, basically, because the tax incentives might not necessarily work. They probably won't work. And secondly, like I know that where real job creation comes from in my community is homegrown business businesses expanding, being born, and I'm going to invest in those a different set of tools that I have to support um, businesses that are currently here or that might you know, open up. Cities within a region have said to one another, we're not going to do this bidding war thing. We're not going to poach firms from one another. And we're actually going to try and collaborate um, and share resources and think about our economic development as a region. And so we've looked at a couple interesting cases, one in Montgomery County, Ohio, where the county has actually established a revenue sharing and economic development grant program. And so if you're a participant, if you're a city in the county that decides to participate, if you want an economic development grant, you actually also have to participate in revenue sharing. Thinking about economic development at at a larger level as Mm -hmm. well. So really thinking about what wins can look like, not just at a certain city or county level, but at a broader regional level. Yes, exactly. And that's how, you know, that's how economies function naturally, right? Economies tend to be regional. They don't mind political borders, right? But cities and counties, you know, these are political jurisdictions. And so when they're raising money, when they're concerned about their fiscal bottom line, they're concerned about their jurisdictional bottom line naturally. So this sort of fragmentation also produces some, you know, predisposition toward competition, right? But thinking about ways that we can actually set up structures and institutions for cities to benefit from regional economic growth is is one way to think about things. To give one piece of advice to policymakers at the city level who are in some of these negotiations or have the prospect of firms potentially moving to their cities and considering developing an economic development package, what would it be? 
I would say that the one thing to remember is that in any tax incentive deal, there is always going to be a trade-off. And the amount that any state or city chooses to spend on tax breaks for Amazon or any other firm is money that could have gone to more evidence-based economic development policies. And that might include workforce initiatives, small business assistance, or importantly, investment in infrastructure and public education. So I would ask them to keep those things in mind. Fantastic. Megan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, elected officials feel a lot of pressure to win bids from firms like Amazon. These companies promise new jobs, large-scale property investment, and a multiplier effect encouraging other companies to move in too. So it makes sense that policymakers will try to lure them with big tax incentive packages. Two, the research shows that economic activity is actually fairly unresponsive to changes in taxes. And CEOs say the biggest influences in where a company decides to go are related to factors like the availability of a skilled labor market or access to highways and airports. And three, every tax incentive deal has a trade-off and the spillover effects of these deals won't always be equally distributed. Eight of every 10 new jobs created are likely to go to people moving in rather than existing residents. That new population of workers will impose a cost on public resources, while tax incentives can divert resources away from investment in things like infrastructure and public education. Transparency, quality, and accountability are critical to making sure these deals work in the short term and the long term for cities and their residents. So that's our show. Thanks again to Megan Randall. You can find the work that she and other Urban Institute researchers have done on economic development and tax incentives at www.urban.org. And please take a few seconds to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And it'd be great if you could spend a few seconds to rate the show while you're there. Those ratings are what help others find our show. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, our producer, Katie Smith, and Yafon Powers and Connor Burwell for all their help. Our theme music is by Moby. And another huge thank you to Yafon and Vicky Gann, who are both leaving the Urban Institute this week. Yafon and Vicky were my partners in crime to help build this plane as we flew it from the start, and they are both fantastically talented and great to work with and will be missed tremendously by me and the rest of the Urban Institute. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.